The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. The time to test people is like one or three days after the symptoms start that you have the kind of the best sensitivity for this test. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. This episode of Annals on Call discusses two articles from recent Annals of Internal Medicine. The first is loss of smell and taste in 2013 European patients with mild to moderate COVID-19. That was published on May 28th. And the second is variation in false negative rate of reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction-based SARS-CoV-2 test by time of exposure. And that was published on May 13th. Joining me today are two new academic hospitalists. Anne-Marie Comfort just finished her residency at the University of North Carolina, is starting as an academic hospitalist with a focus in both clinical education and diagnostic reasoning. She's become an expert in the discussion of diagnostic reasoning over the past several years. Charmaine Sarkarshian has just finished as a chief resident at the University of California, San Francisco Internal Medicine Program at the San Francisco VA. She is starting as an academic hospitalist at the Palo Alto VA, and she also has a great focus on diagnostic reasoning. We hope you enjoyed this discussion of the diagnosis of COVID-19. So welcome to this episode of Annals on Call, we're going to really go over the idea of a patient coming in who thinks they might have COVID-19 or who you think might have it and try to figure out how we take the history and how we uh, do tests and how do we interpret all of that. Charmaine and Anne-Marie have joined me today and I'm going to let them sort of tackle this. How do you estimate whether someone has COVID-19 with what their complaints are and their exposure, and then what happens to the tests and why the tests aren't perfect. We'll let Charmaine go first, and then Anne-Marie can bounce in, and and I'll let y'all bounce off each other. Thank you so much, uh, Uncle Bob. It's such an honor to be here on your podcast with you. And um, I'm going to start by just talking about pretest probability and the pretest probability, especially in uh, someone who you're suspecting of COVID. So when I think of pretest probability, and just to remind ourselves of a definition, is probability of a patient having the illness that you have in mind before any diagnostic test is done. And that probability is informed by how high your suspicion is based on the clinical presentation and the base rate of the disease. So if someone is coming in with shortness of breath, for example, if you are in an area with a high prevalence of COVID-19, you already have a high suspicion. 
And then the idea is that how much the history and exam finding matches your illness script of particular disease. At the same time, thinking about that complaint being less compatible with others' uh, diagnoses, such as uh, pneumonia, such as pulmonary embolism. So those are like what I'm grappling with when I'm evaluating a patient. So this wonderful article from uh, Europe, we hope is relevant to the U.S. Anne-Marie, what did you get out of uh, that article in terms of things that make it more likely that someone actually has COVID-19? So some of the big things that I took away from this are that a lot of the symptoms are rather nonspecific. The most common reported general symptoms were headaches and about 70 myalgias and about 60% and then cough also in about 60% and then fever in 40%. So these are kind of the nonspecific flu-like illness that you see. And so I think the difficulty, especially when you're in a time where winter time or there's a lot of other respiratory illnesses going on, is distinguishing coronavirus from other respiratory illnesses. Not that you can't have both concurrently as some studies um, have showed. And so this looked at what percentage of people have a taste or smell dysfunction. And it was actually one of the most common symptoms. Now, I think the thing to keep in mind is this was in predominantly ambulatory population. And so this seems to present way more commonly in an ambulatory rather than an inpatient population. But in that ambulatory population, about 70% of patients were reported to have smell dysfunction and about 50% taste dysfunction. This also goes along with other studies which have showed similar findings about 60 to 86% of ambulatory patients self-report olfactory loss. Um, But then some other studies in hospitalized patients have shown that it's a lower percentage. So I think that this can be a really important finding to kind of clue you in when some of the other findings are nonspecific. Um, Some studies show that having in an ambulatory population, having small dysfunction can increase the odds of disease by about six to 10 times. And so I think that that is one thing when you're trying to differentiate them to keep in mind. This is why I wake up every morning and if I can smell the house, I'm very, very happy. And (laughs) that's what I've told all my friends. Can Can you smell the flowers? Yes, that's good. But that is actually really useful, and I like the way you explained that, Anne-Marie. So now we have this patient coming in. They ate at a restaurant, and they were concerned because somebody was coughing in the restaurant yesterday. And they, they have no symptoms. So now we're going to do a test. And then we, then we have another patient who comes into the emergency department or into an office, and they might have been exposed a few days ago, and... Now they come in because they have some of the symptoms that you just mentioned. They have a headache, they have myalgias, and you ask them about sense of smell, and they say, you know, that's, you know, I couldn't smell my coffee this morning. Let's talk about how that's going to influence us. And Marie, I know that you're very interested in post-test probability. Could you sort of give us the pre-test as we, we just took the history and the post-test as we get a test result? And ha- how do we make those adjustments? 
So think about the pretest probability. You're going to be thinking about what was the magnitude of the exposure? Were they a close contact or is this a healthcare worker who could potentially have a lot of different exposures? And so that's going to raise it. Um, one study showed that in patients with close household contact in China, it was about 11% of those patients with close contact um, got COVID-19. So you're going to be thinking about how close was the contact and then also how compatible are the symptoms. If someone has fever, but they clearly have another source of fever and they have no other symptoms, then that would be less compatible with someone who has fever, cough, shortness of breath, upper respiratory symptoms, loss of smell and taste. And so we're going to be kind of thinking through all those things in our mind. To my knowledge, there's not one calculator that allows us to really calculate it. So a lot of what we're doing is we're combining all the data. How close is the contact? What compatible symptoms do they have? And then saying, you know, do I think they're a high pretest? probability. So someone who had a household contact who tested probable, who tested positive would be a high pretest probability, whereas someone who had no known exposure and maybe had one symptom but didn't have other symptoms would be a lower pretest probability. And then after we do the test in question, we're going to be saying based on what was our pretest probability? So the chance that we thought that they had infection before and saying it's about 10 to 11% based on household attack rate. And then how does the, a test change that? This test is very specific. And so a positive test is really easy to interpret, but sensitivity is lower. And so a negative test, there's a fair amount of false negatives and so because of that, we're going to be thinking about, okay, this if this test was negative, how much does that really decrease it? If we're saying, let's say the test is 70% sensitive, it actually would only change the likelihood of disease by about, decrease it by 25%. And so since it's an imperfect test, it does not rule out disease. And the thing that's so interesting, Charmaine, about uh, this test and I hadn't thought about this before, and that's why I love this uh, other article in the annals, where they looked at a bunch of studies where they tested people who were exposed and tested them on different days when they're still pre-symptomatic, and then tested them when they're symptomatic and continued testing them. In my own naive way, I thought that, that the test had a sensitivity and a false negative rate that was across all times. But they make a great point in this paper that you can't do an HIV test right after they get HIV. You actually have to measure a viral load. Hepatitis C and hepatitis B don't turn positive right away. And I hadn't thought about it. And th this was just incredible to me. So, Charmaine, could you sort of give people an overview of how the timing of the test is going to change how we think about this? Yeah, absolutely. And I totally agree with you, Uncle Bob, kind of refreshing that window period. And I found this article really fascinating and also very important for how we're practicing um, and using this test. So just to uh, take a step back. Um, so the RT-PCR test is the one that we commonly use to diagnose and rule out COVID-19 infection. And it really guides our decision-making. Who should uh, come off of uh, contact precautions and isolation? 
when should an exposed healthcare worker go back to work? So these are all the questions that we're grappling with. And we use this testing to help inform what our next steps are. And data continuously to evolve when it comes to the test performance. And this paper looks at how the false negative uh, how the false negative of the RT-PCR changes with time of exposure and symptom onset. And what they found is that the highest false negative rate was on the day of exposure, which uh, thinking back, it makes sense to me because virus needs time to replicate. And if they haven't had time to replicate, you're not picking it up on the PCR. And the lowest false negative rate was three days after the symptom onset. That's about eight days after exposure. I'm just going to repeat that. Uh, which had false negative rate of 20% that roughly translate to about 80% sensitivity. And when we think about it, this number is like not very reassuring. However, my understanding is that that's not too far off from the other respiratory viruses and the testing that's done for them. The other variable that we have to kind of keep in mind when we're thinking about this test characteristic is the prevalence of the disease. And that's why I love the uh, negative predictive value of a test. So just to remind us, the negative predictive value is a probability that a negative test means actually patient doesn't have COVID. And it's um, and it takes into account the prevalence of the disease. So if we just kind of play with the number, if there's a 5% prevalence of COVID with that 80% sensitivity, the negative predictive value is about 98.9%. And if you change to prevalence of 1%, then the negative predictive value is 99.8%. So what does that mean? A good test in a rare disease, it's great at rolling it out. A good test in a common disease, it's not good enough at rolling it out. Anne-Marie, we, they did this study, and now you have a fellow resident. Uh, and this, is, this has actually happened to some of the residents in my program. They were exposed very early on in the pandemic before people were using uh, good protection and before we really understood spread. Let's say that their symptoms fit real well. What do you do with a negative test? And how do you interpret that? Or we actually discussed this uh, with uh, Robbie and Reza on a previous podcast. You have someone who has all the characteristics that look like COVID-19, and yet their nasal pharyngeal swab comes back negative. How does understanding this pre-test, post-test help us figure out what to do? I think that when we're thinking about someone with a really high pretest probability, one negative test, especially one that sensitivity is imperfect at best, you know, 90%, at worst about 60%, and that's assuming an adequately collected specimen, is that one negative test does not rule out the disease. I think sometimes we're falsely reassured by a test, but when you think about collectively all the clinical characteristics together and you have one negative test, we've only decreased the post-test probability by about 25%. So if someone has a really high pre-test probability, then we haven't significantly decreased the chance that they have COVID-19. So in this case, I would suggest um, continuing isolation measures and retesting anywhere between 24 to 72 hours after. And if that's negative, then you would even have to consider the situation. Is this 
a problem with tropism? Is it in the lower respiratory tracts? So we're not picking it up in the nasopharynx or, you know, what, think about what's going on while investigating other etiologies. It's important not to anchor so much on this that we don't miss something else that could be going on, but, you know, also keep the appropriate isolation precautions in place at the time. That's really well stated. I'm going to try to restate what the two of you have said. The RT-PCR, which is the nasopharyngeal swab, is a great test when it's positive. When it's negative, you better believe the patient and you better worry about the patient. If it's negative and you really didn't think they had it, then you can believe the negative because there was such a low probability ahead of time. Charmaine, is that, is, is that a, a reasonable summary? Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. And I also that one other thing about this paper that I found um, that's going to change my practice is when to uh, actually test people. It seemed like the best time to test people is like one or two, three days after the symptoms start that you have the kind of the best sensitivity for this test. I think that's really important for uh, primary care physicians who get a call from a patient the first day they have symptoms. And what I hear you saying, and just, and I read the paper exactly like you did, is tell them, let's see how you do for the next couple of days. If the symptoms continue, let's test you then because you're going to have the lowest false negative rate at that point. And after three days after symptoms start, as the time goes on, the test is less good, which is which is just amazing. But I think it has to do with what Anne Marie said, that sometimes it goes from the nose and the pharynx and just sits in the lungs. Uh, is that your understanding, Anne Marie? That that is my understanding. So uh, Charmaine has already told us how this would change how she approaches patients. The test positive rate in the country is running between five and ten percent. There are people who say that in order to go to a restaurant that's open, you have to not have a temperature. Does any of this make sense when we understand how common fever is? So uh, do do you all remember how how common fever was in people who tested positive? In the paper here, the European paper is about 40%. I've heard about up to 70% throughout disease course, but not as common on presentation. So I think that we're over-relying on the symptom of fever when maybe we should be using some of the other symptoms like loss of smell or taste in conjunction, you know, kind of thinking about everything collectively rather than relying on a fever alone. Yeah, I wonder whether we're all going to become pseudo-neurologists and have some uh, (laughs) smell sticks in in, in our coats or something and pull it out and say, can you smell this? Uh, what, what, what kind of smell do you think it is? And I say that somewhat facetiously, but I'm, I'm wondering whether or not that might be a way to push us in one direction or another. I'm very puzzled as well about <laughs> what's the best way to uh, uh, go forward. One thing that was interesting in the paper, uh, Uncle Bob and Emery, I would love to hear your take on it because a lot of the testing that was done was like after people had improved. So objectively, not that many people actually at the time that they evaluated them had loss of smell or taste. And I don't, uh, I'm curious to hear how you both are thinking about that. I have two colleagues who had it and uh, lost their smell for like two weeks. And the day they could smell the morning coffee, they were ecstatic. They were both pretty sick. Uh, Anne-Marie, how did you think about all this? I think one thing I thought about is that some of this is we're using this smell stick. But a lot of times that 
patients were self-reporting it more than was captured. And I wonder if part of that is that recall bias, which is possible, but I wonder if part of it is that this smell stick is probably the science of olfactory and smell and everything is not very well understood. So this is also an imperfect test. So I wonder if part of that was maybe symptom resolution, but part of that is that this alone did not capture the symptom that the patient was experiencing. But I do think that we know from that, I think about a third who had said they had symptoms, it didn't show with the testing with the smell stick. But I think that we can maybe say that perhaps that self-reported symptoms might be enough in this case. And maybe that some sort of score, I don't, Dr. Centaur, I don't know if you're looking to make another uh, criteria, you know, say like maybe loss of smell gets you this many points and all combined together to try to come up with a pretest probability of disease. Yeah, and I love that, Anne-Marie, uh, mostly because if you think about our pretest probability, we're going by the history and the self-reported history should be enough in that case. Yeah, and somebody will probably come up with a, with an estimation score. Let's, let's finish up, and I think you addressed this uh, earlier, Anne-Marie, healthcare workers. So with the same symptoms, how does being a healthcare worker and being exposed to people who have COVID-19 change your pretest probability? Let's just make that very, very clear. It's going to be increased because there's probably known and unknown exposure. So I would consider healthcare workers and people with a known contact with coronavirus the highest risk patients when I'm assessing pretest probability on history. And those people, if they have any symptoms at all, number one, you're going to test, and number two, you're going to be dubious of a false negative. And Charmaine, do you have any final thoughts on that? No, I totally agree. And I totally agree with you both. And that's how I've been thinking about it. And the other thing that just like came to mind is the other challenges that um, that false negative rate has on our healthcare system, thinking about healthcare workers in area that is that COVID, um, there's a lot of burden of the disease and thinking about people who need to be out for uh, more than a few days. You know, a year ago, if somebody would have said, oh, I had a little bit of a cough, like you feel better, go back to work and how that stress and challenges that is providing our healthcare system. It's uh, the story continues. Thank you all so very much for having this conversation with me, trying to figure out who to test and how to interpret tests uh, in COVID-19 is extraordinarily important. And uh, the two of you have shed a lot of light into that. Uh, I just thank you a lot. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Centaur. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to join you all. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This fascinating discussion focuses on trying to predict whether someone has a COVID-19 infection. The first thing that I got out of this is how important the timing of testing is. Soon after exposure, patients are very unlikely to have a positive test. The chance of a positive test peaks at three days after the onset of symptoms, and then it starts to decrease, making the chance of false negatives a major concern. The next is that we're starting to develop an illness script for COVID-19 that takes into consideration the article on smell and taste. We need more articles 
to better develop a way to understand the classic clinical presentation and be able to come up with a sense of whether someone is likely to have COVID-19. And the final thing is that people who use fever as a screen are using an inadequate screen as only about 40% of the patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 present with fever. Perhaps we should be asking about smell and other symptoms if we're trying to screen people who might possibly be infected. We hope you've learned quite a bit from this discussion and we thank you for listening. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.